0: Any list of Scotland's greatest exports worth its salt would have to include Presbyterianism, the music of Billy Mackenzie and the Associates, and Lindsay Hutton and his fanzine The Next Big Thing. Based in Grangemouth, The Next Big Thing started publishing in 1977. Early issues showed off Lindsay's fine taste in American pre-punk and the best early UK punk. By the early 80s, the mag had evolved into a beloved garage rock institution. You've likely seen pictures of Joey Ramone sporting his NBT shirt. Besides De Brudda's, Firm favorites of Lindsay's included Rocky Erickson, Suicide, The Nomads, The Dictators, Panther Burns, The Flesh Tones, The Cramps. You get the idea. High-energy touchstones that by all rights should be rock radio staples. Open any back issue and you'll be sucked in by the lovingly handwritten style, bold graphics, and Lindsay's knack for coming to the point. No dissertations or deep dives here, just piles of gem-like quick takes designed to give a short, sharp thrill. Lindsay's streamlined, bracing writing style flecked with Scott's dialect doesn't so much describe a band's sound as capture its essence. He was happy to let his stateside pals at kicks and ugly things do the long form What did the pretty things eat for breakfast on the Silk Torpedo Tour thing? There's room in the garage rock tent for all kinds of approaches. The last print issue came out in 1997. In 2017, a 40th anniversary issue appeared and sold out instantly. But don't worry, the full PDF library of back issues is up at nextbigthing.blogspot.com where you, dear listener, can catch up on decades of teenage excitement, romance, and mystery. Can rock writing ever be as exciting and life-changing as rock music itself? What do you think?
1: Well, it depends who's doing the writing. If, if it's Miriam Lynna and Billy Miller at Kix, then yeah. Uh, Greg Shaw at Bomb, sure. Uh, otherwise, you, you begin to go on a sliding scale.
0: Does it make a difference what kind of music you're writing about?
1: I think that if somebody's writing about Saham that they like and they want to convey a message about it, then then that's that's the important thing. There's no point in just putting a boot into Saham for, for the sake of it or wasting the energy uh, doing that. It's pointless. Now, I want to get to your rock writing
0: soon. But maybe we'll start at the beginning. When did you start getting into music, Lindsay? Uh I,
1: I, I suppose the, the first record I ever bought was uh, Fireball by Don Spencer. That was the the, the theme sh- to Fireball XL5, a puppet show about space. <laughs> uh that that would have been what 65, 66. But I was only I, I was only we then. The first time I really started getting into music was T-Rex. T-Rex was probably my first real thing. And that went to Alice Cooper, to The Dolls, to The Stooges. Uh, And and maybe maybe concurrently with a T-Rex thing was Bowie Lou Reed, subsequently The Velvet Underground. So because I worked in a record store when I was a kid, I had access to all that stuff and I, and I could hear it. So, so I was pretty well versed in that 14, 15, something like that.
0: It sounds like you got into glam and kind of worked your way back to some of the roots of that music.
1: I, I mean, glam, glam was the thing that was my formative years when I, I was at school. Uh, and some people didn't they like Barry Blue or, or or Hello or some of that stuff. But it, it was really the cedar punk rock. It, a lot of people who were, were my age came for glam, glam rock also and started punk bands. You mentioned working in a record store.
0: Did you also play in any bands at the time? No, teams? no,
1: I'm completely non-musical. Uh, my dad was a piper. He played in a pipe band. And I think the the intensity of that and maybe wanting me to, to take up the pipes it put me against learning music. Of course that was a mistake, but um I went down the path that I went. <laughs> <laughs> And tell me
0: about the record store experience. You—it sounded like you were just in your young teens when you were working there. Yeah, the,
1: the place—the place was called Orbit Records here in town in, in Grangemouth, and I used to be in there all the time buying stuff and bugging the staff and and the owners, so so they thought they would put me to work, and it was great, you know, because it, as I say, it it gave me access to stuff, and I heard every type of genre, every, everything. Uh, and, and, I, and I always say that there is only really good and bad music, and you don't really have to bother about the bad stuff as long as you're aware of it.
0: Were you seeing a lot of things coming in, like imports from the States, other parts of the UK as well, or Europe? Sure, everyone.
1: Every, you know, I remember when Raw Power came in on import, uh, and I got the second copy of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Leonard, Leonard Skinner, Blue Oyster, Cult, the uh, Cheap Trick, uh, Elliot Murphy, all that stuff. Um, it was it wasn't a punk rock, but it was sort of American underground rock, and that that was that was my specialist subject.
0: Anything going on nationally or locally in Grangemouth? Any any bands that were noteworthy appealing to you at the time?
1: Well, no that, a, no, that appealed to me. The Cocteau Twins came from Grangemouth. Uh, that wasn't nice a for me, but I knew them. Uh, Simple Minds, I was involved with their, them early on uh, when they were a completely different band to what they became. Uh, otherwise, in Scotland, the Rosillos. The Rosillos were probably the best made the best Scottish, if no UK single, oh that Stramash, you know.
0: Yeah, are they still around in some capacity?
1: They are. There's a version, with and uh, Eugene and Ali Patterson. Uh, I'm not really sure. I think they got a new guitar player lately, and I can't I remember who that is.
0: And now, when did you get the idea to start Next Big Thing?
1: Ooh, well, I think that... The, the 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 big thing that set me off was when sniffing glue came out it became possible to have a magazine that was stapled in the corner <laughs> it wasn't a sta- saddle stitched so uh, I, I thought uh, maybe i wanted to try and and and, and make a, a a magazine that reflected stuff that wasn't getting covered Elsewhere and certainly Anglo stuff, uh, uh, English st- stuff like sniff and glue.
0: And were you inspired by any Scottish fancies at the time as well? I know Bambalam yeah, and, Bam Bam and
1: and Hot Wax were were two titles, uh, and that I sold copies for the guys and and I, actually last year I helped Brian Hogg put a book together about the Edinburgh counterculture. So Brian's still around, and he's a, a very underrated person. He, he, his, his contribution uh, to music in Scotland isn't properly celebrated to my mind.
0: Bambalam, the 70s back issues are some of the most meaningful kind of fanzine writings that I've got.
1: I mean, how, how did do you hear about that? About Bambalam? Yeah,
0: yeah, I I think probably just from reading about fanzines and then I'd start picking up cheap issues whenever they'd pop up on eBay. Shipping wasn't what it used to be a few years ago. So it was possible to to score a cheap copy and order them and and it wouldn't cost you an arm and a leg to have it shipped over from the UK. Okay. And one of the Toronto libraries, a reference library, had a copy of his uh his history of Scottish, Scottish rock. pop and rock. Mm-hmm. yeah, which is which is great. I spent a couple of hours just poring over that years ago too. So um and I've got some hot wax issues as well with uh from Bert, who I think he's still wow. around. He's he's still yeah, selling so things online, yeah, yeah. I think.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. He's he's also a record store guy with with a bit of a reputation. Sure, I mean, being... you
1: you you strike me as being a youngster a youngster. So it's it's funny to hear young. everybody talking about these magazines because you have to be of a certain vintage to to have been there.
0: I mean they're before my time. I'm only forty, but sure. uh, but but I guess I've. I've spent the last couple of decades just uh, piecing things together and filling in some of the gaps in my collection. Um, not a lot of print scenes out these days, so you've got to kind of go back to uh, to find inspiration. Sometimes
1: it's impossible, you know, it's impossible to be able to pay for printing a, a a magazine new because the infrastructure for distribution doesn't exist. And as you you know, as you just said, posting stuff. All over the world is really horrible these days. Uh, it's just not possible.
0: What distribution sort of channels were you using, Lindsay?
1: Yeah, well, they came. They came through Dutch East and Cargo and Shigaku and 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 distributors like that, right? Uh, and and they went all over the world. They they went absolutely everywhere, and there was a real infrastructure and a real interest and outlets. That, that would that would actually stop them. It just all these places just dried up. And and, and it ended up laterally that some of them went out of business owing us money. Uh and as it was, I used to take out bank lo- bank loans to to fund it. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, so al- although you never made the money back really, what what you got and in, in terms of contact uh, uh, and lifelong friendships is way, way beyond money.
0: There's this sense of connection among people who are into marginal music and, and fanzines. And the sense I get with you, just from reading the blog that you do, uh, Next Big Thing, the blog spot, but also back issues of Next Big Thing with you, the camaraderie with fellow travellers is especially strong. How have you managed to make so many close friends around the globe through Next Big Thing?
1: I never ever saw anything that I liked as being marginal, for a start. Uh, and and as I said, you, you found people who had liked the same stuff as you, and you and you had made a had a camaraderie sort of straight away. So it it wasn't something that was really worked. It it something that was really organic, and 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 it, and it just luckily came together. And it exists to this day. I think that a lot of the good faith for, for me personally was because I was involved with the Cramps the fan club, the Legion of the cramps What they brought to the world is beyond everything. You know? They changed culture. I, I, I honestly believe that they changed culture altogether.
0: Do you want to unpack that a bit for us? What what were what are some of their contributions?
1: Well, there would be no Quentin Tarantino. There would be no Betty Page burlesque haircuts. There would be none of these compilations of weird exotica or strange rockabilly. There mm-hmm. would be nothing. They made all that possible, in much the same way as the Stones did for blues. They did it for an entire landscape.
0: The Cramps fan club that you run. There's another connection there. We're talking about uh, correspondence and meeting other kind of like-minded souls. There's a Stephen Morrissey connection.
1: Uh, There was a guy called Stephen Patrick Morrissey from Manchester. He was involved with a fan club for a few months. But then he, he went and he started a band called The Smiths. I'm not sure whatever happened to them.
0: Yeah, it sounds familiar, vaguely familiar. Now, did you did you ever meet uh, Morrissey?
1: I never met him. We we corresponded. I have I have a pile of correspondence and we spoke on the phone, but the last contact I ever had with him was when he invited me to come and see the Smiths in Glasgow and I turned down the the invitation because I just didn't like them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they they never really
1: did it for you. Uh, no, it, it was kind of weak. I can appreciate some of the records now, but at that point, I suppose I didn't want to go and see them and be negative or something. Like that. So I stayed away.
0: That's fair. We talked about fanzines. Were you also reading one of the more slick UK magazines at the time, like Zigzag, NME? Were these ever oh, some yeah. inspiration? Uh,
1: everything. Uh, I, at that point in time, you could get Sounds, NME, Zigzag, a bunch of fanzines. Uh, American mags like Bomb and Slash, New York Rocker, uh, Todd Abramson's... Young, fast, scientific, everything. Uh, you know, you voraciously just grabbed everything you could.
0: I guess of like the slick, like the, the bigger UK magazines, do you remember which one had one of the more credible coverage of this then called new wave music?
1: Sounds and NME were vying for, you know, who would break the the new thing or and what have you. They were both about neck and neck, I would say.
0: Now turning to next big thing, you put out in your first year a bunch of issues. You seem to be on a real roll, and what would you credit that to?
1: Not thinking about it too hard and just doing it.
0: Would you say like the music and the excitement of the scene had some role in that too?
1: At this point in time, I, I honestly can't say. There must have been plenty to cover. And there was, you know, there were many gigs every week. So I, hon- I honestly can't explain why there was some so so many. They were so badly photocopied, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, m- m- many of these things, as you know, they're, they're, they're on the blog for anybody to go and ha- have a look at. It was a, I guess it was a a route that I was taking without knowingly having any sort of plan or knowing what I was doing.
0: Well, the sense I get from those early issues, but but really through the life of Next Big Thing, is that your writing kind of aspires to the high energy of the music itself. It's got this kind of gonzo fandom that gives you a palpable rush when you're reading it. How, how <laughs> deliberate was this? Is this something that you are consciously... Trying to achieve?
1: Mm, again, no. To me, what I was writing, and even the concept when I think about it of even thinking that I could write, I'm not sure why I did that either. When I started handwriting stuff, then I think that masked any shortcomings in the content, you know? It was more like I might just spew it live. On the page. <laughs> um just kind
0: of writing from your id in a way.
1: Uh I'm <laughs>
0: <laughs> one of the beautiful things about your fanzine is is the visuals. Like it is it is so like pleasing to pick up an issue of next big thing and, and just look at the visuals. The cut and paste job is is a thing of beauty. And as you mentioned, you hand wrote all your stuff. You also hand wrote a lot of the contributors uh content as well too. Yeah, Where did that mm-hmm. come from?
1: Well, it just it just fitted the look of the uh, of the magazine. the The handwritten uh, with a rotring pen against the cut and paste, stark high contrast thing was some that I, I really liked, and it and it, it reflected the content. I think.
0: And and how much time would that actually take?
1: Well, if you were being paid by the hour, you know <laughs> that you wouldn't even think about it. It took ages. It's a real labor of love for you. Aye, it was a it was a labor of love, and it, it was it was just uh something that I had to do. It must have been a mission or or or, or something, but I kept doing it in spite of the fact that it never made it any money and some people would ask what what, why are you doing this just uh, because i am
0: (laughs) i'm going to read a quotation from you lindsay from your last print issue that came out in 2017 and it goes like this it's better to plant a seed that cajoled someone into hearing or reading or seeing something than to spell it all out in long form i think short form is definitely your strength did you recognize this from the beginning
1: well, no, no, for the beginning because, like I just sort of said, I had no idea what I was doing. But sometimes when you just when you read something that just goes on and on and on, it just bores people. It's like you know, don't bore us. Get to the chorus. So if you can, <laughs> if you can come up with a sentence almost almost like a tweet length sentence that interests somebody. And what you're trying to, you a band or a film or whatever it is if you can get them to go and investigate it themselves, they're more likely to take to it I think,
0: and like you said before, it sort of reflects the content as well too it sort of captures the the spirit uh, and the energy of the music in a way
1: that that was the sum that was really Calculated. You still hear things that are uh, that get you excited. Uh, just the other week, there I, I heard a, a a new single, an EP, by a band from Melbourne called Mister Teenage, and it's it just sounds like something nineteen seventy eight, but it's fantastic. It's really really exciting, you know. And if, if a youngster was able to tune in on the excitement that i feel then it could start a hundred bands it's 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 got that much it's it's got that
0: much soul so there's this passion in your writing this this kind of like unabashed fandom is it also fair to say there's a cranky quality to your writing as well
1: yeah a curmudgeon (laughs) is a a word that is often thrown in my direction it's no contrivedly cranky i'm just maybe cranky that's that's <laughs> maybe it
0: you come from the land of john knox it's you come by it honestly Lindsay.
1: well you uh, yeah this the, the scott the scots are notoriously cranky
0: <laughs> i hear that i hear it in issue two from the summer of 1977 you've got a review of a slits jam subway sect buzzcocks clash show uh, where you dump on the audience's predictable punk fashion and take shots at the clash's political posturing, so even as you appreciated a lot of this new music, were you already wary of some of the trappings of punk culture?
1: Yes, because i i I don't perceive that any of that was rock and roll uh it might have been this thing called punk rock that was that was being manufactured but that particular show in Edinburgh is something that is this given credence as as the ground zero for bands like this, the Scars and what have you. If I don't know if you're interested in that stuff, but there's a film, a documentary film called Big Gold Dream, and it it goes it goes with the uh, the pretense that that was that was the start of everything and I'm nowhere in it to this day but the film the film makes a decent fist of trying to explain it but it shows shows the chasm between Glasgow and Edinburgh that's only 52 miles apart but it be as well being 5200 you know
0: What were some of the differences uh, between the two?
1: (laughs) Glasgow's a much more real uh, and open place. Uh, Many types of art, like theatre, music, writing, film, comes together. In Edinburgh, it's a bit more cliquey and and less honest for want of a better word there's i didn't really want to piss on Edinburgh, but uh it's just no as good as glasgow
0: yeah <laughs> i love it poa my friend poa <laughs> in your first couple of issues i noticed that you give shout outs to sire and Electra records for hooking you up with tickets with interviews and photos did you find that major labels were quite approachable and keen to work with you, even though you're a young Xerox fanzine writer?
1: For some reason, yeah. Uh, I think that a bunch of the people weren't really much older than I was. So perhaps they recognized something or they they just wanted you to write about it. And I wouldn't really pursue anything and particular unless I was going to write about it of course people would send you things uh, unsolicited but that was their problem
0: and the zine is named after a dictator song from their first LP Uh, and you also founded fan clubs for uh, the cramps and you had like a flesh-toned zine going on Uh, you mentioned that kind of your bread and butter a lot of it in the 70s was American underground rock And would you say New York City bands also had a special appeal for you?
1: Yeah, they did. Uh, Fundamentally New York bands, but American music in general.
0: If I name you some bands, are you game to give me a few impressions, Lindsay? Maybe like how they've shaped you, if your love for them has wavered or changed over the years? Sure. How about the Ramones?
1: Well, what what can you say about the Ramones? It's so sad that... uh, Joe never got to see what he was to become, or or had that any sort of level of well. It it was always a star, but I mean the Ramones, like like the Cramps, changed everyone. They really did.
0: Still underrated, would you say?
1: Well, they became a t-shirt, didn't they? Uh, I mean, a lot of people think. Ramones is like super dry. That it's a it's a fashion brand, but if any of these kids go find out that it's a band and listen to it, I mean, in somewhere like Spain, the Ramones is a religion. So they're they're no underrated then. Everybody knows how fucking great they are. You know, uh, it's it's so great to. To be a, a, and amongst people that that get it,
0: those first three albums, especially, and then the live one, but also stuff from the eighties too.
1: Oh yeah, Subterranean Jungles a fantastic record.
0: That's Mondo classic. Bizarros
1: yeah. and a Mondo Bizarros a wonderful record.
0: Yeah, yeah, better than most of us would admit. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, flesh Tones.
1: Love the Flesh Tones.
0: They played here a year ago. I didn't go. I should have. but oh. I saw the live footage and it. it Look like a good time.
1: Well, they they deliver. That's that's it. It's they're as good news as they ever were. They really are, and and tremendous people. I mean, they, they they deserve they deserve to have the world. But but I don't know what's going to happen if they can't tour their show. It doesn't even bear thinking about, it. and nobody's getting any younger.
0: Yeah. There's another band I want to mention, Suicide, who also kind of from that scene, but but musically very different, but they seem to do it for you somehow.
1: Well, Suicide, are uh, all these bands, uh, Suicide in particular, there would be a lot less electronica if Suicide never existed. And it was the juxtaposition between almost duo and hard-driving electronic music. I mean, something like Ghost Rider. Even guys like Henry Rollins was a huge suicide fan. Uh, again, a band that couldn't get arrested at the time have become something that that kind of managed to get everywhere and people are still discovering suicide
0: no they're they're one of the special ones i just hear like the stooges when i like i hear funhouse but with without all the guitars of course but it's it's just eerie it's yeah that you could get lost in that sound
1: i mean the stooges and the flaming groovies and the mc5 all these type of things were the grassroots of suicide wasn't it that much later. Certainly they they started there in 1972 and Alan was definitely influenced by Iggy for sure.
0: So we are talking about some of the, the bigger UK magazines and you also wrote for a while for Sounds magazine. How did that come about and what was that experience like?
1: Edwin Pouncey uh, otherwise known as Savage Pencil, he uh, arranged for me to do a gun club thing after the Kramps fan club folded. And he kept me in there for a, for a wee while. I, I would do the sort of psychedelic basement or review or the Red Cross or something like that. So, uh, I was, it was nice to do that. It was, it was good to do that. And it meant that the bands maybe had a, a better platform. I was able to review the first Ben Von combo single for Sounds.
0: Were you pitching things to them at this point, Lindsay, or were they assignments coming down to you?
1: There was, a, most of it were just reviews that I would put in of records that i got uh i i got very little in the way of assignments because i kind of made it known that i didn't just want to go and interview some band that i had no interest in
0: did it make you want to maybe try out as a uh, like a career rock journalist
1: no the expression journalist being applied to me, I find r- ridiculous.
0: You ought to be proud of most of it, I think, Lindsay.
1: Well, thank you. That's the eye of the beholder, as <laughs> everyone.
0: And how about contributors? You you managed to get a lot of people over the years to to contribute to Next Big Thing as well. Was that just kind of done organically through correspondence and friendships? and Absolutely. Just, yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people would offer me things, but I wouldn't take it unless I thought it fitted with the overall message of the thing.
0: Would you say the, the coverage changed, going from sort of like 1970s punk rock and sort of underground rock and hard rock to more kind of like a garage aesthetic in the
1: 80s? That was organic too, and part and parcel with the coming out of the Legion of the Cramped. They largely took the Nuggets sound, and I had a thing about Nuggets in issue one, and they brought it to the almost to the Paisley Underground and Garage Rock thing, and they were also responsible for starting uh, a new wave of rock in Australia and Scandinavia and Spain and Finland, France, everywhere. Everybody wanted to st- almost wanted to start a band like they did after hearing the Ramones.
0: Would you say that culture, that culture of that music, is still going strong these days?
1: Uh, absolutely, is yeah.
0: Anywhere particular where it's really flourishing?
1: Well, all over this. There are tons of garage bands in the U.S. still. I would say that I would venture that there are some in Canada. I don't know of any current ones. But Spain, uh, Sweden for sure, uh, Norway. Uh, I just the what was that band called? The Chaotics that I heard the other day there that are doing that whole Crimson Shadows type sound that are good. There are some great pop bands in Norway, for instance, the Dalmans. To me, if they had existed 20 years ago, they would have had a decent recording contract and some success. It's strange. There's still stuff out there. There's definitely still stuff out there.
0: So you have hope for the planet, music-wise at least. Sometimes. (laughs) It sounds like you still travel quite a bit to to seek out new music and to connect with people.
1: Uh, Yeah, I do. Uh, Mostly to Spain at this point because that's the last great rock and roll country on earth. Now, uh, during this COVID thing and what's going to happen after that, I don't know. But there, they absolutely get rock and roll like no place else. Uh, Now, I've never been to Japan or uh, Australia. But in Spain, I just feel at home. It's it's such a wonderful, vibrant place, and the people are so passionate about rock and roll. Uh, there's a f- festival called Fantastic Dracula Carnival, and that would take place over Halloween every year. This year it was neon, but it's a gathering of the clans bands from all over the world come there and it's the craziest party that you could ever imagine it's absurd
0: that sounds like a blast, I hope it's on in 2021
1: if it is oh dear, woe betide (laughs) Benidorm
0: so what's the future hold for next big thing can we expect a 50th anniversary issue
1: well one must never say never that it will never be a coffee table book in my lifetime, I just gave the last set of next big thing print next big things to the National Library of Scotland. That'll live in there long after I'm done with. I would like to do a, a print magazine with people. There's, I mean, there's going to be a kicks number eight sometime soon, so. Maybe, you know, careful what you wish for.
0: (laughs) Many thanks to Lindsay for taking the time. That URL again is nextbigthing.blogspot.com. And thank you for listening and giving a hoot. Please leave a review and tell a friend. We're back again in two weeks, and we'll see you then.